Good morning. There's, it doesn't ever seem like there's a good time to break up our fellowship. Sorry, guys. You'll, you'll have to just make it part A and part B. Um, hopefully, people at home, you guys had enough time to um, have a re go refill your coffee, get back to your seats, however it is. Um, but I'm pleased to share with us this morning. Um, I'm, I love um, Palm Sunday. And I feel like every time I, I told somebody the other day, I said, I think I speak on Palm Sunday, like for the last three or four years. So it's always a challenge for me to be like, okay, Lord, what is it that you want to say today? Um, and because uh, I and I'm, I'm excited. I feel like the Lord has something for us today. And um, I told Kathy just during our break, I feel like some of what she shared at the beginning um, is in my notes and uh, not exactly. But anyway, I appreciated how she started our worship time off this morning. Um, but today I want to, the title of my message today is Jesus's song. And typically on Palm Sunday, we, we talk about this entrance, this triumphal entrance that Jesus makes into Jerusalem. And it kicks off this holy week uh, where, you know, we, we start having different times of recognition throughout the week. On Thursday night, we think about the Passover meal. That Jesus had with his disciples before he goes into the garden. We think on Friday about Good Friday, the day in which Jesus's trials happen and his crucifixion happens and his death happens on Friday. And we think about Saturday as being that, that still day, that Sabbath day, that quiet day. And Sunday being the resurrection day, resurrection Sunday that we get to celebrate next week. And um, so I was thinking about some things, and just in studying and preparing, um, I was thinking about what, what was Jesus's um, mixtape during this week? Did you guys, I know I'm old, and I know there's other old people around, so you guys had mixtapes too. I remember when I was uh, dating Sarah, and that's what you did when you liked somebody, you made a mixtape for them. You put like a number of different love songs on it. You gave them a cassette and then they could play that mixtape. Sarah and I, when we were engaged, we were apart for like three and a half or four months. And uh, she gave me a mixtape that I could take with her. I, for some reason, I think like an Ace of Bass song was on there. So anyway, there you go. Only Ray Lynn could laugh at, there's, there's a few older people who could laugh at Ace of Bass right over there. Okay. Mixtapes. I know that sounds a little silly. Playlists. We have playlists today. I share a Spotify account with Jane. Jane has like 40 something playlists. I think it's for how many times her mood can change in a day or a different theme throughout the week. Um, so we share. I'm glad she's not in here. She'd be mad at me. Um, but Jane and I, I, yeah, the playlists I have are quite surprising on my playlist that I share with Jane. So Jesus's playlist for this week. Um, what were, what were the things running through Jesus's head? What, what was playing in Jesus's mind? What was Jesus's song? What was he meditating on? Playlist is something we meditate on. Songs are something we meditate on. What could Jesus have been meditating on this week? What was he meditating on as he smelled like perfume? You know, the woman who broke that, that costly bottle of perfume and it poured all over him. And he said, this is for my burial. Throughout this holy week, Jesus is walking around, and I'm sure he smells like that perfume. It's very sens sensory happening, so he's smelling this. What's the song that's going through his head? 
Last week, um, I was thinking about this, and, and, and then I was listening to Sarah's message from last week, and she talked about how at the end of the Passover meal, it records that the, the disciples in Jesus, they sung a hymn, and then they went to the garden, right? It's just recorded. It's one simple sentence. After singing a hymn, they, they, um, they left to the garden. Scholars think that the song that they sang was Psalm 118. There's six Psalms, uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're called the Halal songs, Psalms. And they were typically Psalms that were sung during Passover. And there's debate, because there's six of them, there's debate that they sang one Psalm before the meal and then the five Psalms after the meal, or they sang two of them before the meal. And this is how argumentative people can get. No, 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 it was one and five. No, 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 it was two and four. There's literally camps out there who debate this. Uh, one and five or two and four. But it's, it's believed that Psalm 118 is the last of those Psalms. And more than likely was the song that they, the disciples sang before they went into the garden. Now, I can't prove that. It doesn't say it anywhere exactly, but tradition would say that those six psalms were the psalms that were sung during Holy Week. So I have a challenge for you, one thing to think about this week. Um, would you meditate on those psalms this week? Would you take one a day? Read Psalm 113, Psalm 114. Psalm 117 is like two verses, so that should be an easy one for you, but um, think about meditate on those. So Jesus's song. One of the other reasons I think Psalm 118 is so important is because it's a backdrop for a lot of other things that we see happen. So I want to start and just refresh our memories out of Matthew 21 about this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. It says Psalm 21 verse one, as they being Jesus and the disciples, they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what, the, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One of my old Palm Sunday messages was the donkey king. So we're not doing that one this week, but that's where that came out of. This idea of riding in on a donkey meant you were coming as a king of peace, not as a king of war. Kings of war would ride in on horses. Kings of peace would come in on donkeys. So it's really significant. So it says in verse six, uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Just pause for one second here. Think about it this way. Jesus planned his own entrance. Jesus is like, now is the time for me to plan this. Now is the time for me to make this final and full declaration. I am the king of peace. I am coming into the city. I am establishing a kingdom. I am coming in and there will be victory so Jesus is planning this entry. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on it for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's our nice tradition of palm branches. Uh, it was also 150 years prior when Israel had had a victory in battle. They had waved palm branches at that time as well. It was actually on their currency as well. These palm, this idea of these branches. Um, 
For them, it was like this reenactment of a, of a victory 150 years earlier as well, thinking, man, this is going to be another good political victory for us. Not quite what happened, but that's what they're thinking, perhaps. They let spread them on the road. Next verse. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Pause there for just a second, if you could. Thanks. Um, this verse right here, if you look, it's recounted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This verse here is right out of Psalm 118. If you look in your Bible and look at the footnotes and look at the references, this is a reference back to Psalm 118. My proof point number one, why I think this was on Jesus's playlist that week. Hosanna to the son of David, or save us, Lord, save us, Hosanna. He's the one who's going to save us. So verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the singing, the chanting, that what they're, what they're yelling, and perhaps that's on everybody's mind as well. This is Passover week. It's leading up to Passover. Perhaps Psalm 118 is fresh on everybody else's mind as well. But they're quoting that as Jesus enters. So I was thinking about the difference, and Kathy started our worship off this morning, reminding us of Jesus's life scripture, or Jesus's at the beginning when Jesus started his ministry, Luke records it in chapter four, and he's quoting Isaiah 61. And so when Jesus starts his ministry, he, he pulls out the scroll. He sits down and asks for the scroll and reads from Isaiah 61. And it says this, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will, be, will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's the, the, the song. That's what's on Jesus's playlist when he starts his ministry. Who doesn't like that playlist? Like good news to the poor, captives to be released, the blind to see, the oppressed set free. The year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee year. Like, who doesn't want to hear this? This is like the best news ever. Jesus is starting his ministry with like the best news ever. And we see it in his ministry. We see it played out in his ministry as the tax collector is called to follow him, as the leper is touched and cleansed, as the Samaritan woman finds her identity and life and spirit and in truth learns how to worship. All along, you just see the stories of the good news and the good news and the good news. And in Psalm 118, you see this Hosanna. You see this Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord saves us. And imagine the people, imagine the disciples at the Passover night reading this psalm, reading this psalm. The psalm starts and ends with, the Lord is good and his mercy. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. That's this Psalm 118. It's so, so powerful. 
this guiding scripture. So, so think about these bookends of Jesus coming in with Isaiah 61, the good news and the Psalm 118 for the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His love endures forever. But if we read and we read the stories of Jesus and we look at how the week unfolds, uh, it's not all good news throughout the week. It's not all great news. And in fact, Jesus draws out of Psalm 118 some greater depth to what he experiences that week as the week goes on. Because as he comes in, not everybody is actually that happy that Jesus is coming. Those that are in power, both religious power and political power, are not happy. They're not excited. Jesus doesn't represent good news to them. He's coming in as a threat. You've heard the term, you go from hero to zero. Have you ever heard that? It's like your, your, sports, your, your sports analogy of, you know, you won the playoff game and then you lose the Super Bowl. You were the hero, now you're the zero. Um, it feels like a little bit Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday as the hero. And by Friday, he's like the zero. By Friday, people are like, crucify him. Get rid of him. He's a problem. Yeah. Man, this, this doesn't seem uh, to be maybe going the way we would think it would go from Sunday to Friday. Not the trajectory necessarily we would think about. Psalm 118, if Jesus is meditating on this, and more than likely had, they all had these memorized. They had these Psalms memorized because of the frequency of their celebration every year. It's like you all having O Holy Night memorized. How many of us can sing probably two or three verses of that every year? We just hear it all the time. That's how these Psalms were. So it says this in just before we have this Palm Sunday celebration in Psalm 118. It says this in Psalm 118, 22 and 23. It says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Whoa, okay. That, that might help provide some greater depth to this holy week. All of a sudden, this idea, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I want to unpack this a little bit as we go through. So as, as the week progresses, um, Jesus comes in as this peaceful king, but he's coming in as king. He's coming in and he comes into the temple and he's like, this isn't right. This needs to be set right. And he cleanses the temple. And there's other things and other encounters. And all of a sudden people are coming to him saying, is it legal to pay taxes? They're asking him the big questions. Who do you think you are? What's your authority? Do you really, um, you know, have authority to be doing the things that you say you do and doing these different things? So there's all sorts of conflict and encounters and the powers that be of the time challenging Jesus. And he tells a story and he tells a parable. He tells a parable about a vineyard that an owner has and the owner has a vineyard and hires tenants to care for the vineyard and goes away. And as the, the vineyard produces grapes, the owner sends back uh, servants to say, hey, I'd like to have some of my grapes from my vine. And the tenants start abusing them and killing them 
And eventually Jesus tells the story that the owner says, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to send my son back to, to have my, the, the, the fruit of my vineyard. And they say, let's kill the son. Let's kill the son because he's the heir of this vineyard. And then that way we can keep it. Nine tenths of, nine tenths of uh, ownership is uh, possession, right? We're here. We own this. We're going to kill the son. We're going to keep this. So Jesus tells this story to the rulers of that time. He tells them that story. And then at the end of that story, he quotes Psalm 118. And that's what he says. And it says in Matthew 21, sorry, Corky, I know I'm jumping around on slides, but Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus just declares right out to them that you're the builders. He's talking in, in, in Acts 4, Peter quotes the same thing when he's talking to the religious leaders of the day. And he's saying, you're the builders. You're the builders of faith. You're the builders of the images of God. You're the builders of our understanding. You're the, you're the ones who are supposed to build the people and build the temple and build the understanding of God, build the knowledge of the Lord. And you've rejected me, the stone. You've rejected me. And it's this puzzling thing that this rejection then becomes a cornerstone and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord's done this. There's such a paradox of things that happen, isn't it? Such a celebration, such a good news. And yet there's this rejection that happens of Jesus. Jesus experienced the rejection of people. Jesus experienced it. It says in Isaiah 53.3, Jesus was, it's a prophecy about Jesus, that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And John records this, that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You're starting to see these pictures of Jesus emerge of like, someone with good news and victory and healing and deliverance and this amazing message. And yet at the same time, you see this rejection happening of Jesus. In his book, Bob Sorge quotes this, Jesus's life illustrates a simple truth. If we could get the next slide, Corky, that'd be great. Sorry, I jumped over one. Jesus' life illustrates a simple truth. Even if you're perfect, you still experience rejection. Think about that for a second. Even if you're perfect, you still experience rejection. Jesus experienced great rejection. And I was thinking about as we were worshiping today and and chains and things that, that shame might be a chain, fear might be a chain. Rejection sometimes can be a chain in our lives. It can sometimes be something that, it, that, that we carry around. And I, I get the, if, if Jesus is perfect and Jesus experienced rejection, he didn't live from that place of rejection. 
Rejection wasn't his identity, but rejection is what happened to him. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And throughout his ministry, he's teaching, it says this in Luke 11, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely. Remember, these are the builders of their day. They began to oppose him fiercely, to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. And Jesus can really identify that it wasn't just easy for Jesus. It wasn't just that, man, he had good news and every, everything went great for him. He had this resistance. He had these challenges. When he started in his ministry in Luke 4, we read before his starting passage of all of the good news. Well, the way that that ends in Luke 4 is that all the people in the synagogue were furious. The story went on because he's talking about his calling, his identity, him being God, what he's going to do. They were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Man, Jesus didn't, wasn't feeling the love in his own hometown. So we have this, this picture of Jesus, this full understanding. What, so Jesus, as he's walking through this week, Psalm 118, what's on his playlist? The love of God endures forever. God's love endures forever. And yet, I know I'm the rejected one. I know I'm being rejected by the builders this week. And this rejection is going to translate into my death. This rejection is going to translate into betrayal and denial and torture and shame. It's going to translate into all of these different things. Jesus experienced both rejection and also praise. I think in our lives, um, I don't know about how, how your life goes, but I think we can live sometimes in the teeter-totter um, of rejection and praise in our lives. I don't know about you, but my emotions and my, how I think about myself and my self-esteem can rise and fall when I feel rejected. It can fall. And when I feel praise, it can rise. And a lot of times as just normal human beings, we orient ourselves to rejection and praise. How do I get less rejection and more praise? And then how do I base my feelings on that? Oh, I'm feeling rejected, therefore I'm gonna feel terrible or self-loathing or whatever the word, or, oh man, things went great. I feel good about myself now, I feel good. And we have, we live our lives at times, I think on this teeter-totter of rejection and praise. And we adjust our actions and our emotions and our attitudes to lessen the one and increase the other. I don't see that in Jesus. I don't see that in Jesus's life. I don't see Jesus being oriented. Bob Sorge would say this, he wrote a book about rejection and praise and how we don't live. God's not called us to live in this teeter-totter. He would say this, that Jesus was hurt by rejection, but wasn't wounded by it. It wasn't the thing that defined him. It wasn't the wound that he lived from, but it hurt. It's all over the place where it talks about him being rejected. 
in his own hometown. A prophet, he says, a prophet isn't uh, accepted in his own hometown. So he talks about, it's not that he's impervious to rejection or unaware of it. In fact, I think when you love deeply, I think rejection hurts even more deeply. But I don't, you don't see in Jesus's life that he's all over the map because of rejection. And then when he's getting praised, there's some scriptures about the praise. I want to hit on them real fast for Jesus. In John 2, it says this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew that we have a hero to zero complex as people. He knew that they could celebrate him coming into Jerusalem on one day and five days later yell crucify him. He knew that was what was in the heart of people. So he understood how to properly process praise. That's how he was processing praise. In John 5, Jesus says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He says this in the next verse, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is tapping into something here. And he's saying, you as normal people, as natural people, you like to accept glory from one another. And you like to quote one another. And you like to give honor to one another. But he says, I'm seeking the glory of God. I'm seeking a different glory. Because he knew our propensity. He knew our weakness. One more in John, John 12, Jesus is talking to the disciples and says this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they would still not believe in him. This was to fill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. And I kind of skipped over that part. Um, You could read it on your own, but I jumped down to verse 42 and he says this, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for they, uh, for fear, they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Are you starting to see a pattern here of, of Jesus's, how did Jesus live in this place of rejection and praise? How did he live in this place of being um, incredible in who he was and what he was doing, yet being rejected at the same time? He found his worth. He found his identity. He found his focus. He found his emphasis on pleasing God. On what does the Lord say about me? What does the Lord think about me? Where's my focus? Where's my emphasis? Because I can't, I can't live in the teeter-totter world all the time. Please trust me as a people pleaser, as someone who likes to please people, I've lived in this teeter-totter world a lot myself of how do I please people so that I can feel loved? 
How do I perform so that I can feel loved? And I don't see that in Jesus. See Jesus being so secure in his identity, so secure in the love of God, so secure that he's not rising and falling on rejection and praise. I was thinking about the passage in Hebrews that talks about how much Jesus can identify with us because he experienced everything that we experience. He experienced the rejection. He experienced the praise. And in Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews reminds us about Jesus and says, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Man, the Lord empathizes with our weaknesses. He empathizes with our being uh, rejected and the pain of rejection and the hurt of rejection. And he empathizes with the, the, the ecstatic, the ecstasy of, of, of accomplishment and success and praise and adoration. He recognizes all that and he empathizes with that. And yet he doesn't want us to live from that place. He doesn't want that to be our identity. He doesn't want us to walk around as rejected people. And he doesn't want us to walk around as inflated people and people that live on the praise of people. I think we can see just in watching everyday lives of people, how you can go from being praised to being hated in 10 seconds. Boom, just like that. Doesn't take long doesn't take long. And for all of us, how do we live? Proverbs says the fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Don't let praise or rejection disorient you from the person of Jesus. Jesus experienced both. He endured both. He didn't improperly value the praise of people, and he didn't improperly take onto himself this rejection. He understood people to be fickle at times, to be praised one day and criticized the next, to look for approval with each other and not with God, to seek one another's glory, but not God's glory. How do we handle rejection and praise as people? I want you to meditate on that this week. Lord, and as we're studying the life of Jesus, as we're looking at Psalm 118 this week, as we're remembering Jesus as both celebrated and rejected, how can the Lord do something in us to give us victory in our lives and bring something greater to us so that we're not disoriented and paralyzed by seeking after the wrong things? Now, one, one caution, two cautions on this doesn't, sometimes we can say, well, you know, I don't want to receive praise, so please don't compliment me, right? Or no, I, man, Jesus didn't receive people's praise, so he walked around very stoic, like, yep, mm-hmm, yep, it's good, very, there's almost this, um, this stoic sense or this disconnected sense. Jesus was not stoic or disconnected. He received the love, he received the people, he received the people 
but he knew their praise could be fickle. He received the love of the person and loved the person, knowing that the next day, maybe it would be criticism, maybe it would be rejection, but I'm still going to love you. Jesus loved those that rejected him, and Jesus loved those who praised them, and he came close. And that's what the, the Lord wants us to walk in deeper love and deeper closeness. So it doesn't mean that we are, are distant so that we're not rejected or distant so that we don't get an inflated sense. It's actually that we come closer and we go deeper. We go deeper in love. The second thing is that Jesus was perfect and was rejected. I am imperfect and should be rejected from time to time. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. Like, I make mistakes. Like, uh, Peter says, don't call persecution something that happens when you do something dumb. I'm paraphrasing what he says in 1 Peter 2. But he's like, because you do something dumb, don't say that you're being persecuted. Like, persecution only counts if you're doing something that, like, reflects Jesus, that you're, you're properly representing or reflecting the person of Jesus. That's when persecution's okay. But if you're just dumb, it doesn't count. I'm both. So I think in love, we have to be teachable and humble. So when we're feeling rejected or we're feeling inflated, how do we press through to love? And you know what? How can we be teachable? How can we be humble? How do we not live from the, in this this teeter-totter. As we live from this place, the Lord wants, uh, of all people, followers of Jesus, he says, you're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience rejection. How can we be the people, the followers of Jesus, who live through that, who live through that and love and even love then? Jesus often said, people who are are, are not followers of me. They're kind to people that are kind to them. And they have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's like, that's the normal thing. How can, how can following Jesus be abnormal? How can we press through in our follow, following of Jesus to participate in the Lord's suffering, to experience rejection and love through it? We participate in the Lord's suffering. So the last, the last part of this, we've been talking about Jesus and Jesus' song, this Psalm 118. He comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he was rejected by the people of the day. He was rejected by the builders of the day. But it says that he became the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected now became the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important stone in a building. It's that stone that gets laid, that, that um, is strong, that is straight, that is true, that is level, that you can build from. It's, it's the basis on which you build everything. And Jesus is like, you're rejecting me. But what you don't realize is that who I am is going to become the basis of everything moving forward. It's going to disrupt everything that you've known. It's going to become the new thing. I am the new thing. I am the cornerstone on which everything else gets built. 
Jesus says, didn't you read this? The stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over the stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who falls on it. He talks about how disruptive what's happening is, how he's coming into this place of changing everything. He's becoming this cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. And that, if you think about that, as they're walking around in this holy week, they're looking at the temple. Even his disciples are like, this is a pretty amazing temple. This is a pretty amazing thing. And Jesus says, this, this thing isn't going to last. This temple you see won't last. And it's true, about 40 years later, it was destroyed. It didn't last. But what has lasted? Jesus has lasted The cornerstone has lasted. It's on which we have stability. It's on which we align everything. Everything is aligned against this. And this was the threat. This was the challenge. This was the disrupting of the status quo. This was the reorienting of life to Jesus being the cornerstone. It was so disruptive in John 11 to to the leaders of the day that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it says this, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. There, you see this at the end here, as as Jesus is going towards crucifixion. They're like, this is going to disrupt everything, our temple, our nation. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. So there it is. There's the plan. There's the plan that's hatched. We've got to get rid of Jesus because he's going to disrupt our temple. He's going to disrupt our nation. This cornerstone, this new foundation, this new foundation is both for us individually and it was also for the church it was also a corporate thing. It was like, what is, what is going to be the new temple on which things are built? The person of Jesus. What is it when we go to Gentiles who are not Jews, who don't have a temple? What is it that they're going to celebrate? What is it that is going to be their focus of their worship? The person of Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus became the cornerstone, not just for you and me and our lives, but became the cornerstone on which all people would come to know the kingdom of God. All people would be invited in. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2 and also in 1 Corinthians about Jesus being the cornerstone for the Gentiles and Jesus being the cornerstone on which everything is built. Jesus, this cornerstone, the new foundation, the the man who lays down his life for his friends the savior who could do what we could never do. I love this quote by N.T. Wright. He says this, talking about Jesus. He's taking upon himself 
the weight of the world's wickedness, to exhaust it, to let evil do its worst and give back nothing but forgiveness, to hang there as the incarnate presence of the loving God in the waste of our wraths and sorrows. I love this word exhaust. Throughout the life of Jesus and, and even in this last week that we celebrate and remember Jesus, Jesus exhausted every possible thing that could be thrown at him and defeated it and brought victory. The unclean person who touched him was supposed to make him unclean. But no, they were healed and they both were clean. In every way and at every time, Jesus is victorious. Every evil, every wickedness, he, he exhausts it all. He takes it all. He takes the rejection. He takes the abandonment. He takes the betrayal. He takes it all. Let evil give it his best shot. And it comes up short. Comes up that Jesus defeats sin and death. Jesus defeats it. He defeats sin and death. Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our cornerstone on which everything hangs on which our community hangs, on which my life hangs. Jesus talked a lot in, in uh, you read it in Matthew and you read it in Luke, that, that our lives should be founded on the rock. The teachings of Jesus, the person of Jesus, founded on the rock of Jesus. So I, I'd like to conclude by thinking about Jesus this week. Psalm 118, Jesus being both rejected and being the cornerstone. I think the Lord wants to do several things in us. One, he wants to heal us from rejection, being our identity and defining us and owning us. We will be rejected. We will experience rejection and the pain of that, but that's not who we are. Jesus overcame rejection for us. He took it. He took all the evil, all the rejection that could be exhausted. He took it all. He can take our rejection. He can heal us. As we think this week about where our worship is and what do we praise, thinking about the glory of God, Jesus didn't, 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 we, we praise one another for the good things that we do. I would encourage us to praise the Lord this week for the glory of the Lord, Jesus doing what no one else could do, defeating sin, defeating death. Where is our worship focused? Lord, help us get off this rejection and praise teeter-totter and let us be focused and healthy and whole on you, your our cornerstone. What is it that in us that the Lord wants to displace all other things. The cornerstone gets set. The rest of the building gets wrecked. Rome gets blown up. The nation gets blown up. The temple gets blown up, but the, the cornerstone stands. The disciples of Jesus's time could never imagine that temple going away. Couldn't imagine it. What stands? The cornerstone. Jesus stands. Jesus entered this holy week with this song in his heart. This blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to save us. Knowing that God would demonstrate his goodness. God would demonstrate his victory. Knowing that God would show the world that his love endures forever. 
And Jesus was keenly aware of the rejection that he was going to face. He knew he would be laying down his life, but he would be being established as the cornerstone. And it says in Psalms, this is marvelous in our eyes. This is marvelous. What we're celebrating this week is marvelous. It's marvelous. So I was hoping we could stand. And to end, I'd like to read the end of Psalm 118 together. And and before we do, I just, I was reminded of this where it talks in Hebrews about Jesus. And it says this, it says, for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I don't have it on the screen, just, just listen. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider Jesus this week. Consider, fix our eyes on Jesus, our cornerstone. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In times of rejection, we can grow weary and lose heart. In times where we feel like failures, we can grow weary and lose heart. In times of shame, we can grow weary and lose heart. There's all sorts of times in which we can grow weary and lose heart. Let's look at the life of Jesus this week. This man of sorrows rejected by people. He experienced all of those things. He can sympathize with our weakness. And he sees something greater. He sees the glory of the Lord. He sees for the joy set before him. There is joy set before you. There is joy set before me. There is joy set before us. And we're called to consider Jesus. So let's put the scripture on, on the screen. And I want, to, I want you to go to, and in your mind, think about you being in the upper room on Thursday night, the Passover. You're having that Passover meal with Jesus. And we come together and Jesus has washed our feet. He's, we've eaten, we've broken bread together and had wine together. And Jesus has said, this is a new covenant. I'm doing a new thing. It's all found in my body and blood. And one of you is going to betray me. And one of you is going to deny me. And you have this deep, we're having this deep, meaningful meal, Passover meal with Jesus. We're singing these Psalms. And as Mark records, they sing this final hymn and they go out. And I want you to think about Jesus singing these words. Jesus singing these words about himself. So let's put that up on the screen. This is the end of Psalm 118. Could you back up one slide, Corky? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it to this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. 
join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen. Jesus is saying this, knowing that he's fulfilling this. He's walking into this. So, Lord, we thank you today. We thank you that Jesus is the victor. That in in being laid down and being rejected and being crucified, in suffering and persecution, he purchased victory over sin and over death. He made a new way. He showed that the love of God endures forever. The love of God endures forever. And Lord, we come today and we just, I just ask for each one of us, Lord, that your song would be in our hearts. That your overarching message to us, that we can, we can praise you. We can give thanks to you for your good and your love endures forever. Your love endures forever in our lives. Your love is greater than our rejection. Your love is greater than our greatest accomplishments. Your love is greater than our suffering. Your love is greater. Your love is greater. Your love is greater. And we thank you that you took, you took it and you exhausted all the works of the enemy. You exhausted all the works of the wicked and purchased victory. And so we celebrate you today. And as we close, I just want to give us an opportunity. If you've not made Jesus if you've not recognized Jesus as the cornerstone, Jesus wants to be your cornerstone. He wants to be the one on which your life is based and founded. He's purchased a life for you. He's purchased forgiveness of sins. He's purchased victory for you. He's purchased victory over death. He's, he's laid everything down. He's exhausted evil so that we can be forgiven and free. And Jesus is calling us to say, Come to me. I want to be your cornerstone. I want to be your cornerstone. And that's the call for each one of us. It's a call to each one of us saying, yes, Jesus, you're my cornerstone. You're my cornerstone. You're, I want my entire life founded on the, on the foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone. If you've never done that before, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus as your cornerstone. It is where you will find life and freedom and joy. It's where you will be able to endure suffering and persecution and rejection. It's only as we walk with Jesus that we can endure. So come to him. So we just come this morning and we accept you, Jesus. Pray with me. We accept you, Jesus, as our cornerstone. And in ways where we're we're disoriented. We've, we're not oriented to you. We're oriented to our own success or oriented to rejection. Jesus, we reorient to you this week. We reorient to you today as our cornerstone on which everything in our lives is based. In Jesus' name, amen.